Amen. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be back with you all this morning, coming fresh off of celebrating 20 years with Susan. Uh, we've started on 21, so we're underway. Uh, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and just to remind you of something that we're doing that's maybe a little bit different than what we've done in the past, I'm going to read the whole passage, and then when I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you are going to respond with... Thanks be to God. All right, so I, th I think you got it. Let's try it out. This is uh, the word of the Lord, Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, 
So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, now, I just want to remind us from chapter one of something that is of critical importance for our understanding of the book of, the, of Revelation in whole. Now, do remember from verse three these words, and it was within the confession that we read, but, but I don't want us to forget them because it's easy to kind of approach Revelation with the wrong uh, attitude and tone, uh, and so I always want to make sure we're oriented. Listen at what... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now again, just to remind us what that means is that the church must be faithful in being willing to uh, engage with the book of Revelation. Right, And throughout the church, we've talked about this before, the church has kind of a strange history with Revelation in, in, in general. You have groups of people who avoid it altogether because it's just hard. And we don't like to do hard stuff. And if, if it's not going to be clear, then we don't want to fool with it, which actually isn't true. How many of you have clearly read these words? Read the instructions first. Is that clear? Oh, but we love to violate that premise and oftentimes discover we've got parts we don't know what to do with. And should all this stuff be left over? Probably not. But we lie, right? When it's clear, we say we want more complex. When it's complex, we say we want more clear, right? The ball's constantly moving for us because really what do we not want to do? We don't want to change, We don't want to be changed, and we don't want to be challenged, which is what's required in order to be changed. Well, the book of Revelation is intended to transform us or form us into the kind of people that look like Jesus. And what we're going to see in the book of Revelation is that Jesus looks like a slain lamb, one who died for the sake of the church, one whose sword actually comes out of his mouth and is not in his fists. And so he uses power in a completely different fashion than what we're used to, which is so much of the book of Revelation, which is pushing against the kind of power that the world uses in order to get its point across or to try to create followers or or all of these other things. And so what we want to do is make sure that we are recognizing the upside down nature of what we're being called to and being formed into. So that means there's going to be some work involved. We're going to have to think about some things. Right? We're going to be confronted with some things that we may not like, and we have to wrestle through and think through. But what we want to make sure that we do is not turn Revelation into a puzzle that leaves us confused and confounded. That is not what the Word of God does. That's what Satan does. So as we step back into these letters to the churches, uh, I appreciate Wes's sermon from last week. He led us through the first four churches, which, again, it's a great title, Christ's Letter to the Seven Churches, which is the conquering churches, right? We, we conquer in Christ. And so do remember that uh, these seven churches are not intended to be, they're not the only churches that existed then, by the way, and they're not intended to be, uh, 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 for us, d- Distant examples that have no, no impact on who we currently are. In fact, all of these churches, in, they, they exist today. And the question is, which of them are we? 
or what season are we in that we might be like one of them? Do you remember that the church at Ephesus, what did they love? Oh, they loved being orthodox. They loved being right in their doctrine. Is that, no, no church today cares about that kind of stuff, right? But what did they fail in? What was it that Christ took them to task for? They didn't love people. They, they struggled to stand in the paradox of being right about something but loving those who were wrong about things or being wrong about something and being corrected themselves in their own doctrine and loving people who would come and correct them, right? So they had the trouble of, of taking their orthodoxy and turning it into orthopraxy, which means to love their neighbors as they love themselves, something that uh, any good Reformed church could struggle with. Right? And do remember that the next church that he spoke to, the church at Philadelphia, was one of the few, the only two churches that actually uh, he commends only and doesn't take them to task. But he is warning them to not lose focus, right? Because if you remember, they were a little bitty old dying church in Philadelphia. They didn't have a whole lot going for them financially, but what they did have is faithfulness. And how often do we look at a church and judge it by what it has? Or doesn't have. On a number of occasions, I've had people visit this church and, and, and be honest and say, listen, I, I didn't visit y'all's church for a long time because I looked and saw y'all been meeting in a community center for like 15 years, and what legitimate church does that? And we've had people depart from our midst, and I'm, I don't hold this against them. You, you got to value what you value, but because we don't have a building yet, it, it seems to delegitimize what it is we're called to do. Is that true, church? It better not be, because it wasn't true for Philadelphia. I doubt they had the best spot in the city as a dying church who didn't have a whole lot. And so what we're called to is faithfulness, and faithfulness is, is blessed by the presence of Christ. And so what we, what we long for, what we ought to want, is for Christ to be present with us in our faithfulness. And if he is so gracious to give us a building, which, by the way, if we were to have a building at this point, do you know what our budget would be? You know how much it costs? You hear that air running? We don't pay for that here. It's part of our rent, but we don't pay for it individually. That that you hear that runs for some reason only in wintertime, which is awesome. <laughs> I'm not, maybe we should pay for it after all. If we were to have to pay for that for the, a building of 20,000 square feet that we owned, our, our budget would triple. You know, roofs go bad. You know how much they cost? You know, those of you who rent versus own a home, right? That's all we're talking about right now. So the Lord is gracious in that we're not being burdened with a building just yet. We're not ready for it, apparently, uh, in some way, shape, or form. And maybe, maybe it would distract us from the very mission he's called us to in some respects. Now, don't hear me saying, I don't want a building. That's crazy talk, Right? But what I am saying is this, it doesn't mean anything to me one way or the other. What matters to me is that we're faithful. And if he grants us that, let's be faithful in using it. If he doesn't, let's be faithful in setting up here. If he calls it even on this thing, let's be faithful in being Christians wherever he would call us to be. Because we still have him, right? Regardless of the parquet dance floor. It does improve it a bit, I think. Because you can hear him coming. And then he, uh, he had something to say. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't the church at Philadelphia. It was the church at Smyrna. I got ahead of myself. But the church at Pergamum, remember, they were a mainline liberal church. 
right? They, they weren't necessarily taking care of the things. They loved people really well. They thought it was just all about love. And they didn't care about doctrine like they should have. And they let some things creep in on them that, that Jesus didn't even bother to tell us what it is. Uh, for those of you who are worried, are there any Nicolaitans among us? I have no idea. I don't know what those are. Nobody really does. Um, but they're easy to spot because they don't exalt Jesus as Savior. And they don't balance their orthopraxy with their orthodoxy. That's easy to spot, actually. That could be, that could be anybody. So what's important is that we know what a Christian is, not what a Nicolaitan is. And then you have the church at Thyatira who, again, they were kind of like that, that church of Pergamon. They loved everybody really well, but they had a really weird sexual ethic. And they, they just weren't careful with how they thought about their engagement with the culture and the world. They'd become too worldly, Right? And so, so they were not being faithful in the way that they should have been. And so those churches exist today. And we have the propensity to be any one of those churches at any given season if we're not careful. So we want to make sure that we're thinking through who and whose we are always. So as we look at the last three letters to the seven churches, I want to ask you a question. And usually I don't like to tell you this up front because I really just like springing the trap. But I'm going to tell you this because this question's a trap. But here's the question. What areas of our church are lively and vibrant? What areas are struggling and lukewarm? What's the trap? Well, the trap is you. Because, see, a lot of times we think, uh, many of you thought, oh, I, I really think youth ministry is very vibrant right now, and it is. Thank you very much for your service. It's fantastic. Some of you are thinking, we could do a lot better in men's and women's events. We could do a lot better in terms of creating small groups that meet on Fridays at 2.30 a.m. We could do a lot better at, uh, at mission, all this kind of stuff, right? Notice what you did. You thought the church was in some sort of abstract set of programs. No, you are the church. We, as a church, are only as vibrant as you are. And we are as lukewarm as you are, right? And this is important that we not continue to, to think of ourselves or think of church in the abstract apart from who we are. A building will not be welcoming. I don't care how much natural light it has coming in how much uh, open concept it has as you flow in with the Holy Spirit through the front doors, through the narthex, and on into the sanctuary. If you are sitting in a chair in that narthex with your phone out looking at it instead of engaging the people who are being brought in, swept through the narthex by the Holy Spirit and the light and all that stuff. Right? And so we have to change. One thing that has to change for us, and Revelation is pressing us in this regard, you are the church. The church is not abstract. That's why he is talking to churches in a specific space and time. They are historical realities just like we are. He's talking to people, disciples, hopefully, that will dictate whether or not that church is faithful, right? Do, programs are not going to make us faithful. In fact, one of the areas, and this is just real talk, I've mentioned this before, we have 20 plus marriages in varying de degrees of disruption that are in need. Now we can only, like, so what does that mean in terms of the leadership pipeline? 
What does that mean in terms of who can lead small groups? What does that mean in terms of who can teach classes? What does that mean? Like, where should our focus be? Well, our focus needs to be on making sure that the sacred canopies that exist in our midst are healthy. That is what the Lord has entrusted to us, and amen. I'm thankful that he would trust such to us. However, that does mean that those things need to grow strong in order for our church to be truly vibrant and truly faithful and truly healthy. That is but one area. For those of you raising children, you also recognize that there are seasons in which it's easier to do things than others. Seasons change. And so we want to make sure that, again, we are not seeing this as something outside of ourselves, as somebody else's responsibility. It is not. I've said this before. Some of you bristle. I apologize. It's just true. I'm just not the activities director on the cruise line of your Christian life. I'm not Captain Steubing. Robbie's not Gopher, for those of you who know the love boat. You're welcome. Right? But now what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, is what we don't want to do is create church's entertainment culture. Because a church's entertainment culture doesn't weep over sinners as Christ does. A church's entertainment culture doesn't care about the widow and the orphan as they ought, meaning they are welcomed into the midst of our uh, fellowship, community. They are brothers and sisters. They are our flesh and blood. And so I'm uninterested in church as entertainment culture. Yes, you can gather a crowd. Yes, we could have probably built the building five years ago if I'd just capitulated on 10 or 12 or 15 things. But that's not what we're called to be. We're called to be a city on a hill. We're called to be a faithful presence in the midst of the world. And so often faithfulness is displayed through suffering. I know I don't like it either. And so as we think about these letters to churches 5, 6, and 7, what we want to take away is that we are called in Christ, as Christ's church to grow in maturity in three areas. Discipleship, pursuit of missional opportunity, and dependence on Christ for our true needs. Let's turn back to the text and see where those things come from. Here first, the letter to the church at Sardis again. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Let me pause there. As Wes pointed out last week, each of the descriptions of Christ essentially come from chapter one, right? When John beheld Christ in, in all of his amazing glory, that was a prelude to what was going to be said to each of the seven churches. Now, each of these descriptions is a key to understanding what it is Christ is saying to that church. So the seven spirits and the seven stars essentially refers to that which is, should be the lifeblood of the church, which is the Holy Spirit and the spiritual aspect of who Christ is, the angels who serve those churches. Now, you may be saying, well, how do we get in touch with our angel? Because I've got some, I got some things I want to talk to him about. No, that's not what this is about. You don't have to do that. You get to pray directly to Christ your Lord, right? But what he's saying is, is you don't have the lifeblood that is most necessary for a church. You, you essentially are lacking life. And notice what he says to him straight away. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, reputation with whom? With him? With Christ, who it matters the most? No. Where does this reputation come from? Well, it's according to the world. The world is looking at the church at Sardis and saying, that church looks alive. Now, what might this be if we were to put it in our vernacular? 
Well, this is probably a very attractional church. It has a lot going on. Susan and I, when I became a Christian, went to uh, uh, the first church that I went to with her. We were there Sunday morning uh, to, uh, and we didn't do set up and tear down either, by the way. But we were there Sunday morning for Sunday school. We were there for worship. We came back Sunday afternoon for evening meetings, and then we had an evening service. And then we were there on Monday to follow up with the people who showed up on Sunday. And then we were there on Tuesday to pray for the people we'd follow up with that showed up on Sunday. And then we were there on Wednesday to do something else. And then we were there on Thursday for discipleship stuff. And then usually on Saturday, we were busy. We had a lot going on. We put together one of the best fall festivals you've ever seen in your life. The most trouble I think I've ever gotten in, and this is going to be hard for you to believe, was in a meeting where we were, everybody was exhausted. And we had built, I think, an entire city out of plywood uh, and done like 47 cake walks. Uh, I think I lost five pounds and gained 12 back winning cakes. But I said, hey, y'all remember when it was just like Jesus and Kool-Aid? And I got shouted down. I said, shut your, shut your mouth. Because it should be simpler and shouldn't just wear us all out, right? We looked very much alive to the community around us. We built a basketball gym that we wouldn't let you come in. Because we needed to win the church league tournament and we couldn't have you messing up our floor. Guess what happened to that church? It no longer exists. God declared it Ichabod. Because it looked very much alive, but it was very dead on the inside. And you may say, well, Cameron, that's, that sounds judgmental. We had left by the time it went haywire and blew up, but it dang sure did. And it was a lot of what I'm talking about. People were exhausted and, and we're not seeing really any fruit. And there wasn't really any maturity in discipleship because people were running so hard. Nobody had any time to stop and say they had anything wrong with them. We don't have time for your problems. We've got a cakewalk to do. And so this church looks great and is very attractional and has a lot going on. But notice what Christ says. I, I know your works. And you are dead inside. But now notice how gracious he is. Notice what he says to him next. Wake up. This isn't the time for judgment. This is the time for repentance and change. This is the time to become an alive church, truly alive in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So what's he saying? He's saying shift your focus from all of that external glitz and glory and instead focus on what ought to be the lifeblood of the church, which is what? What were we told in Matthew 28 to do? Make disciples, right? Not not entertain goats. We were to go out and make disciples. We were to grow in maturity as disciples. And where we are not doing that, hear me, we are dying. And he gives us a stern warning on that. And he says... For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And again, what matters is Christ's opinion, not the world's opinion. Not our opinion. Not us going, this this feels like a vibrant. It feels like we got some good things going on. That may be true and it may not. It's whether or not Christ is being exalted and you are being dignified in your image bearing as 
well as those who are outside of our church. He says, uh, remember then when you, what you have received and heard. So he's saying, the, the word of the Lord that you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And so there may be some things that we as a church, we, we periodically we want to make sure that we are a reflective church. And reflection takes time. We want to make sure that as, as those who, who have been invested in this church, those of you who are members, those who are in leadership, we want to make sure that we are not doing things because it's the way we've always done them. Or because it's the way some other church has done it. It's whether or not it is what we are being called to do at this present moment in time. And the Lord, and it's going to honor and glorify the Lord and actually make disciples, right? And so uh, that means that there may be some things, and I don't have anything in mind, so don't, this is not a trap. First question, trap. This, not a trap. Uh, is, is we may have to repent of stuff. And I want to be open to that. It's, it's hard because sometimes it just means you went in the wrong direction for a while. It means that you came up with what's maybe a good idea for certain seasons, but a bad idea for now. There may be seasons where we have to pull back on stuff and say, we, we don't have the legs to do that right now, whatever that may be. We, we need to make sure we're strong in the middle. And in fact, we're, we're, not, we're kind of in that season a little bit. If you've noticed our, our growth in terms of just membership and that kind of stuff, it's, it's kind of stalled a bit. And I hate even using that term. But, but what that has given us the opportunity to do is to make sure that those who have come into our midst and become part of our body are growing as disciples, right? What a great season that we're not just constantly churning and having to decide, are we going to do a second service? Are we going to do, what, how many more chairs can we cram in this room? What, what more do we need? No, we're in a season where God is saying, all right, strengthen what you have, not out of judgment, but out of wisdom, and so, so here he's being gracious to them, calling them to repent. He said, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know it at what hour I will come against you. You hear that? Christ just said to one of his churches, I will come like a thief in the night and I will take your lampstand. I will end you as a church. Now, some commentators suggest that the reason he uses this term thief is because of where Sardis was situated, it looked impregnable. But what true military situation is impregnable? None. As it turns out, tenacity oftentimes wins the day. And so some really tenacious folks snuck up the backside of this Acropolis and overtook the city, not once, but twice. You know how they came? Like thieves in the night. And there was not hardly a shot fired, and they were taken. So in a sense, this would have been something that if that's what the, the image that, that God has in mind, and Christ has used this in other places as well, but the point is this. I have warned you, and I'm not going to warn you again. And so he's telling them they need to deal with this. And he goes on to say, now notice, there's even a few folks that are faithful, but that's not going to stop him removing the lampstand from their church. Those faithful folks will still be in heaven. They'll still be Christians. They're just not going to have a church at Sardis anymore. But notice he commends them. 
and describes them as wearing, walking with him in white, which is the sign of, uh, of, it reflects eternal life. Notice again, that's been the theme throughout. He holds the seven spirits in his hand and the stars as well. So he has the keys to life. And so what he's looking for is a church that's alive in its purity, in its faithfulness. And so he commends them. He goes on to say, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. And these are the ones who will conquer. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. And so he's saying, do you hear me? And so I'm saying to you, do you hear what he's saying? It is important for us to hear the words of our Lord as gracious, as challenge to us. Again, I don't know of anything in particular. We ain't got a lot of glitz going on, right? Now that sign out on the corner is pretty sharp, but after that, uh, we're, we're taping stuff up, right? And so, and this, yeah, this ain't, this ain't getting it done worship-wise. And so, uh, so I, don't, I don't know that that's necessarily us, but it is an important question for us to prayerfully consider. Where are we appearing to be alive? maybe, maybe dead in some way. And what do we need to repent of in order to be alive in Christ? And so that's important that we consider those things. And then let's turn to the church at Philadelphia. Again, this is only the second church that has only commendation, but that should not be taken as they don't have to think through some things and be warned. Listen to what he says. It says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And notice again what's being emphasized here about Christ, what's his kingly sovereignty, his power and omnipotence, right? So if Christ says it and, and calls it to be, then that's what it will be. If Christ closes it off, then that door is shut and no amount of your praying is going to open it. No amount of your good behavior is going to change that. It is what Christ has determined. So he is the one who decides in his omniscience. Now, here's what the good news is. He is good and he loves us and he cares for us. And notice what he then says. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What's that open door? Well, this is mission. This is the missional opportunities that this church in Philadelphia has, which is interesting because what we're going to hear about them is that they are not powerful at all. In fact, they're not even probably a church you would visit if you were on vacation in Philadelphia and looked up on the internet churches to visit. Probably wouldn't even have a sweet website, right? They spend all their time on mission. And so it says that, that he will open that door. No one can shut it. No one can take away from them the mission he is giving to them. That's good news to us because if God calls us to something, for those of you who have been uh, just inundated with John 15, what is guaranteed if you abide in Christ? You will bear fruit. That's, that's astonishing to me because I'm not sure I always believe that. And I really want to believe it. And I want to trust that it doesn't depend on me getting it just right and me being amazing and me being uh, great at what I do and me making sure I land on the right emphasis on the right syllable, syllable, right? And so, and so if we abide in Christ, if we are a church who remains faithful on mission, 
What will happen? Now, here's what's tough. What's a day to the Lord? It's like a thousand years. He ain't always as swift to give us the fruit when we'd like it. But he gives it to us exactly when we would need it. And so we need to be a church that trusts, if we are faithful, that the Lord will bear fruit. That we don't have to come up with glitzy programs and techniques and do all kind of stuff to, to woo the millennials or to woo Generation 47B or whatever we're up to now. I don't know. Uh, and so we, we don't have to do all that stuff. What we have to do is be faithful in proclaiming Christ and letting the word be the prejudice. And so he goes on to say, as he describes them, I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this is, a, again, this is probably a small church, faithful, just doing what they're doing. No one takes a whole bunch of notice of them. They ain't got a whole bunch of power. In fact, the only people who have taken notice of them are those who are decrying them supposedly from within. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down, bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So essentially, they may, the persecution they may have endured actually may have come from within their own religious community who said of them, look at them. And we've heard this before. Think of the way in which Paul was, was taught bad about. He gets arrested, you remember. And what did the super apostles say of him? Well, what? why would God let, if he's so faithful, what's he doing in prison? If he's so faithful, what's he doing without all of this glitz and glamour that we have? Power, you know, shows itself in its fruits. Material, no less. Now think about that. How have we imbibed some of that? How have we maybe bought into, well, I mean, if we just had this, we'd be a little more legitimate. If we just, if we just had a little bit more, if we just had, you know, somebody who could play the, the congas or something or... or the fiddle, I don't know. I, well, actually, Mark can play the fiddle. I'm, I apologize. We have that already. Thank you. And it's not the fiddle. It's violin, right? Am I right? I don't even know. I'm making stuff up. Here. And so we, we can buy into this in ways that are subtle, right? Maybe if, maybe if we had better looking people up front. That guy, he shaved his head. I got laughed at this morning in a good way for being bald-headed. And I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, I, get, I get it. Maybe if we hit every mark and transitioned with great ease and beauty, maybe if Dave would play the same song as Josh sometimes, that'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. We could buy into that that's, that's where the power is. But is it? It isn't. Where is actually the true power in this upside-down kingdom, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians? At the very end, when he has cried out so many times for God to remove the thorn from his flesh, and he says, no. Where's the true power? It's in our weakness, actually. I don't understand that either, but I am living proof. And so this church, though it has little power and is being assailed, it is well-loved by Jesus, and he is making sure that they will bear fruit. That door of mission will not close for them. 
And, and he goes on to say, because you have kept my word about, about patient endurance. Now notice that. So much of the book of Revelation is a call to patient endurance. I would argue that the majority of discipleship is perseverance. It's a beautiful thing when people persevere toward reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing when people persevere in repentance. It's a beautiful thing when people persevere to seek to be holy and righteous in the name of Christ. And sometimes it's harder than it looks. And he goes on to say, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Let me pause for a second now. Well, you could get confused and say, well, look, there's the rapture right there. No. Remember what he said. I'm keeping the door of mission open for you and nobody can close it. Why would he take away one of the two really faithful churches he's got? He's not. What he's saying is, if you read the book of Revelation, the rest of it, if you notice when those tribulations comes, they come in fractions, a third, a half, and this, that, and the other. And so what he's saying is, is I'm going to protect you from what's going to befall, but I'm protecting you because I'm going to need you to be on mission to those who are suffering. I'm going to need you to weep over those who are perishing. I'm going to need you to be the church that witnesses to those who are enduring this great suffering and are looking for answers. Because if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that all of the things that God does in terms of all of the trumpets that blow and all of the stuff that comes, there's this terrifying reality. Nobody repents because of any of that. Nobody. That's what the word says. But you know what they do repent because of? The suffering of the two witnesses the suffering of the church itself, the church that looks like the slain lamb. And so he's not going to rapture them out of the world. He's just protecting them so that their resources and everything they have can continue to go toward mission. He goes on to say, I am coming soon. And remember, soon to Jesus is very different than soon to us. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Notice that language of power that he's trying to remind them of. You are in the king. Remember that, church. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice what they will receive is permanency in the kingdom of God. What a gift, and not just any old permanency. They get to be the very pillars that we will look to and say, you mean that little bitty old church did all that? That dying church of 40, 70, 80-year-olds did all that missions work? With all the money they sent out and all the praying they did? You mean that's power? Yes, it is. It's the pillar. It'll show up in the new heavens, new earth. Then he turns to the one church he makes no commendation of whatsoever, the church at Laodicea. And he says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful, and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And again, what he's emphasizing about himself is his unchanging faithfulness, right? Because Laodicea is not like that. They've compromised, as we're going to see. In fact, they're neither hot nor cold. 
They're lukewarm. And I want to make a distinction there. He's not talking about he wishes they'd be good or bad. No, he wishes they would either be useful as hot water or useful as cold water instead of being this tepid, putrid, disgusting thing worthy of vomit or being spit out. So what he's saying is you need to be a church that's of use and faithfulness of some kind. He goes on to say, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Now what kind of church might this be? Well, probably the kind of church that's got a great big old building and has a whole bunch of stuff and maybe even a pastor with an $11 million home. That's not us. I got a nice house, but it's not $11 million nice. And the problem is not that they have that stuff. Let's not forget what, what Paul says to Timothy. Make sure that the rich know it's, it's okay to be rich, but don't forget the poor. Don't forget to use your resources to be faithful. God does bless some people with inordinate amounts of money. And they're to use it just as those who have a widow's might are to use the widow's might for the same purpose. But this church thinks that that means something that it doesn't. And notice what they are blinded by. And this is where I think we've got to be careful. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, that's not a good description of a church. Despite all of its resources. So resources don't equate to faithfulness. So be careful. They also don't equate to, to being evil either. That's the hard part is neither tells us the truth. What tells us the truth is whether or not you're bearing fruit and faithful. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Again, notice his love for them. He doesn't go straight to judgment. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God would discipline you through the words of Christ because he loves you? That he would confront you with your sin that he would use his word to show you where you are failing in some measure, not to be perfect because can you be perfect? Let's just get that off the table. Don't, don't, let's not even play with that one because that's just impossible. And you may say, yeah, but we're all failing at something. Well, that's a cop out too. There are certain things that we're failing at that we could see change that are having a bigger impact on us than others. Some of you, the fact that you're failing to be on the keto diet, is, it doesn't matter. It's okay, right? If you're on it, it's great too. But it's, it's not consequential, right? But, but if you're failing to love your spouse, if, if you are chasing after lovers far less wild, if you are, in some way, shape, or form, failing to love your children, if you are failing to provide and keep the vows that you've made to the church, that's different. That's different. That's of greater consequence in the scheme of things than some of these other things. 
And so you want to be careful that you don't cop out on either side, that you receive what the Lord has to say to you because he loves you and wants better for you. And maybe you say, but I can't see it. Well, I've got good news for you. He's got salve that can help you. It's probably got spit in it, which is weird, but it, that's just what he does. I saw him do it a couple times in here, right? And he can help you to see that which you can't currently see. You may say, I see no way out. That's okay. You don't have to. He does. But what you've got to do is be faithful and seek the help that you need and people to abide with you as you go through the process of reconciliation because he's calling you back to himself because he loves you. And he loves the church at Laodicea. Don't get this wrong. He loves the church at Laodicea as much as he loves the church at Philadelphia. He loves the church at Laodicea as much as he loves the church at Smyrna, which is why he's coming to them to say what he has to say to them. He goes on to say, those whom I love are approved and disciplined, so be zealous and repent. Respond quickly. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, that's interesting. I thought he was already in the church at Laodicea. Why is he outside knocking on the door? Well, because for all intents and purposes, they have kicked him out. You may say, who can kick Jesus out? Well, sometimes he'll go. We've already seen he will take the lampstand away if you're not careful. And so he's standing at the door and knocking because he longs to be back among them even though they are sinners who've got it twisted left and right. He says, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Notice that hospitality and love that he has for his people. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Do you hear that? To this rich, arrogant, foolish, sinful church. He's got the audacity. To say to a group of sinners such as this, you could sit with me in the kingdom of heaven. You can dine with me at the greatest marriage ceremony you have ever seen. Who loves like that? Well, Jesus does, and so ought we. So what I want us to notice is, where does judgment begin in the book of Revelation, interestingly? What house? house of the Lord. Notice he didn't immediately go to culture. You don't get to the ill repute woman of Babylon until much later on. Notice Satan hadn't even shown up yet except to be named as the leader of some synagogue somewhere. Notice that he said nothing negative ultimately about the culture other than the church should not be imbibing it. They should be in the world, but not of the world. This is a paradox and a tension for us. But is judgment coming on the culture? Well, if you've read Revelation, yeah, it's coming. It's going to be rough. Starts in chapter 6 in earnest. So how should we respond to those who are about to perish? Now, let me pause. What has Jesus done to the church that's perishing in Laodicea, Pergamum, Thyatira, Ephesus and others, how's he treated them? Sinners that they are. What did he do? He came to them in love 
And he said, you need to repent for the time is at hand. And I need you to do some stuff for me. And so we, to the surrounding culture, should go in the same fashion. To warn, yes. To call to repentance, absolutely. But first displaying that we love them. First displaying that we actually genuinely want them at our table. At this church that I mentioned earlier, there was a young man named Mitchell. And he had long hair. He dressed all in black. This is when being gothic was... It never, it never was cool, but, it, but he did it. And, and he carried around Satan's Bible, you know, by Anton LaVey. It was all, he was in the youth group. <laughs> and so uh, in God's providence, I got exiled to the middle schoolers because, you know, it was a safe place for me to be. And, uh, and so I immediately looked, picked up on Mitchell. And again, what's funny is you got to remember, I, I still look kind of like this. And so to Mitchell's eye, I ain't safe in a button-up shirt and tan britches. So I went up and I said, hey, uh, you're reading Satan's Bible. That's cool. Um, I said, hey, have you got to the part yet where Anton LaVey says that you're an idiot for reading it? And he's like, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, page three, whatever. He says, I don't believe in Satan either. And those who read this and think I'm seriously Satan are real idiots. And who go around acting like Satanists, they're just morons. That just... Suddenly, he didn't care about Anton LaVey's Satan's Bible anymore. And we began a relationship and met often and talked through things. And Mitchell, in one of his most uh, um, vulnerable moments, said this, and it, it will haunt me for all of my days. He said, I'm pretty convinced that even if I become a Christian, no one at this church will like me anyway. That kills me. He said, well, except for you, and you ain't going to be here long. And at that time, I didn't know he was, he was right. And so it just kills me that, that someone could pass through the doors of any church in the name of Jesus Christ, and, and you could say, well, he was wrong. I don't, I don't know that I can tell you that. Because if he continued to wear that long hair, and those black clothes, that's a sign of ill repute or something. I don't know. And so for him to think that the church wouldn't love him if he became one of them, what in the world are we doing? I'm not accusing us of that. And by the way, you, you've done a great job in many respects of trying to love people who don't look like you. And you've done a, a, a great job of, of trying to be loving to people who are in broken circumstances. It's hard. It cuts both ways. Don't get me wrong. Broken people don't necessarily want to be around you any more than you. And by the way, you're broken people too, by the way. Let's not get this twisted. But we just clean up better. We look, we look sharper. We, we do noxema face cream and stuff, and it helps. And so, uh, so you know, we, don't, we look like we have it together. And, and we lead people to believe that sometimes because we we're not real honest about what's really going on always. So... I want us to continue to make sure that we are growing as a community that loves the world in the right way. To be in the world, but not of the world. To recognize that those who have really bad ideas need to be loved and cared for and warned and engaged with before they are shouted down and told how stupid and wrong they are. 
And we need to make sure that we're still going to love them even when they're, because you don't just up and stop being weird when you become a Christian exhibits A through B29. Right? We're, we're weird. We, all of our idiosyncrasies didn't go away because we became Christians. And theirs won't either. And so our calling is to be like Christ in the world, willing to die for those. You don't have to die, by the way. Let me say this. Martyrdom didn't always mean die. It just meant suffer uh, and meant that you would be faithful. But it sometimes means death. But are we willing to die for because our ticket's been punched? We got nothing left to gain. As Christians, we really don't. You've been given the single greatest gift. It's eternity. It's that white robe that's been promised. Are we willing to die for? Are we willing to suffer for? Are we willing to walk alongside of, relate to, understand, grow in loving those who are hard to love? And if not, do we understand what Christ has done for us? Do we understand who we really are? Susan and I were talking about it, 20 years. God bless her. (laughs) I'm not easy to love. She's easier to love than I am. I think that's just fact. It's just math. But I'm not easy to love. I didn't become easy to love just because I became a Christian. I became easier to love. I was (laughs) less hostile, slightly less hostile. But let's remember who we were. Let's remember how Christ has treated us, his church. Right? So that as we engage the world, we do so in the right tension. So you may be thinking, well, how do I do it? All right, so let me give you a couple of just real quick application points. If when we were talking about the church at Ephesus, or Wes was talking about the church at Ephesus, and he was talking about how, you know, doctrinaire but not loving people well. If your heart went, yeah, but... That's where you need to do some work. That's where Jesus was talking to you. If you heard me saying about these little bitty churches that having a building doesn't necessarily make us legitimate, if you're like, yeah, but that's where you need to do some work. That's where you need to let the Spirit work on you. For those of you who were hearing of the church that loves but was was not so hot in doctrine, you're like, yeah, but... That's where you need to let the Spirit do some work on you. For those of you who uh, heard heard the stuff about um, attractional, I've heard this a thousand times when people come to talk to me about our philosophy of ministry. Yeah, but if we just, well, let's make sure that that's done in the right spirit. Think through that. Let the Spirit work on you as to what you think actually produces fruit. And so these letters are intended to be instructional to us. And do notice that churches go through them in seasons. No one church stays in one place. And as as the church grows, it'll go through different parts of this, actually. So we want to be reflective and cognizant of what Christ may be saying to us. And remember, the church is you. And so, as vibrant as the church can be is as vibrant as you are in maturing in your discipleship. As vibrant as the church is, is only as vibrant as you are in growing in missional desire, purpose, and engagement. And the church is only going to be as vibrant as we recognize our continual dependence on Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Derek Thomas says. I love this quote. 
Christ's assessment of the churches is based not simply on their knowledge of the gospel, but on what they do with that knowledge. What have you done with the gospel is the measure by which the church is judged. Faith is expressed in terms of faithfulness. If you are a professing Christian, you have been imbued with a gift from the Holy Spirit, or gifts, plural. If you are a Christian, you are called to mission of some kind. It may be to your own family. It may be to your neighbor. It may be to your job. It may be to some sports team. It may be, I don't, it may be to some foreign land. And if you are a Christian, you need Jesus right on. That doesn't change. And so we need to be thinking about some ways in which our church can grow in developing mature disciples. And are you engaging in becoming a mature disciple or do you think you've just outgrown all that stuff? But you don't really need all this learning and books and all that nonsense. Okay, well then how are you growing? Maybe you don't, but how are you growing? And are we pursuing the missional opportunities that are really in front of us? Not the phantom ones, not the ones we would prefer, not the ones we would like, but the ones that Jesus has in the power of the Holy Spirit genuinely given to us. And then are we depending on Christ for our true needs? Are we a church? Remember, we've talked about fasting. That evidences a dependency and a need. We've talked about prayer being one of the pillars of our church. That evidences a dependency and a need. And then what role are you willing to play in helping to improve all of those areas since you are the church. So Revelation 3 teaches us that we are called as Christ's church to grow in maturity and discipleship, pursuit of missional opportunities, and dependence on Christ for our needs. Let's do that, church. Let's be a church that truly is vibrant and is bearing fruit because we abide in Christ and we know that he dwells with us. Let's be a church that is maturing in disciples, which I think that we are, really do, in so many respects. A church that is seizing the missional opportunities in front of them. And a church that is ever evidencing its dependence on Christ in so many ways. So many ways. As evidence of our humility, the great deterrent to pride. So as we long to be that church, let's do one of those things now. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that Christ is so gracious to come to his church and warn her. That he loves even sinful churches, churches that have gone way off the rails. He loves the small churches. He loves the big churches. He loves the poor churches. He loves the rich churches. He loves the missional churches. And he even loves the liberal churches, even though he calls them to repentance. He loves the churches that are strong in doctrine, but he calls them to love. He loves his church, period, because it is his bride, and he will grant her every opportunity to have access to the true riches, the heavenly blessings, and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be his hands, his feet, his representatives, a city set on a hill, calling to those who are in darkness to come out. God, help us to be a church that's faithful, and true to you, that will hear from you, well done, good and faithful servants. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.